0: It's 2018, the year of the RASC sesquicentennial, and welcome back to the RASC 150 History Podcast. My name is Heather Laird. I am a director of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and my co-host is the RASC archivist, Randall Rosenfeld. Say hello again, Randall. Hello. Hello. Everyone, today we're visiting the events which are often taken to mark the beginnings of the Rask. We'll look at some of the society's earliest founders and reverently poke at some of the surviving artifacts from the founding year. The search for origins, origins of all types, seems to be nearly irresistible to people.
1: And to the institutions they animate. And why not? Founding narratives can exert powerful influences on institutions throughout their lives. They can be entertaining, they can function as constructors of identity as tools for cohesion, and as anchors for setting policy direction. And the retelling and refashioning offer points of entry for myth. will give you one example. One myth still prevalent in all too many popular accounts of what is termed the Copernican Revolution is that throughout its later life, the Ptolemaic system became weirdly and unwieldily complex, with ever more epicycles piled on epicycles, and that Copernicus cleaned all that up. In fact, the Ptolemaic system didn't acquire epicycles upon epicycles, and Copernicus himself was quite happy to use them in his system.
0: And for an origin myth closer to home, there's one concerning the R in Rask. People still refer to our royal charter, but the fact is, we petitioned King Edward VII for the prefix royal. He gave his spoken assent, and that was that. We never requested a charter, probably out of proverbial Rask frugality, None was ever issued, and truly none was ever needed. But this happened in 1903, decades after the event we're talking about today, namely the origins of the Rask in 1868. So let's set the scene. It's 1868,
1: a year after Confederation, and what came to be called the Dominion of Canada then consisted of versions of Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick and it was all still a colony. The English-speaking population was drawn overwhelmingly from Great Britain, and the main English cultural influences were English, Scottish, and Irish, with some areas of localized Protestant German influence. American influence came via loyalist immigrants of the century before, and, of course, the undeniable proximity of the Republic to the South. The French-speaking population was that largely inherited from New France, they don't enter our story just yet.
0: Trouble was brewing in this new dominion because the vast, empty promised land in which the colonial dream was playing out was vast, but it was far from empty. The First Nations were here first. They weren't going anywhere, and settler culture colonialism seemed to have trouble with that. Cities were smaller, towns were relatively more important, and more citizens were engaged in agriculture labor, and standards of living were relatively lower than at present. Reformers were pushing for a classically liberal market-oriented society, industrialization was underway, and the expanding railway and its financing scandals and shrinking of distance was a sign of an agent of those changes. The population of Toronto at the time the society was founded stood at about 50,000. The current population of Toronto is approaching 3 million, and if one adds the population of Hamilton, it would equal the population of all the colonies of British North America at Confederation.
1: Superfast communication was available with Great Britain and Europe via the transatlantic telegraph cable, which had been recently installed. Well, superfast communication for the 1860s, that is. There was a move towards state supported schools, and mechanics institutes spread from Great Britain with their mission of providing education for the working classes, who had little hope of crossing the class boundaries to attend one of the few existing universities in Canada. The temperance movement was on the rise. Darwin had made his appearance on these shores, or rather his origin and species had, to face opposition from more than a few established scientists. And it should be noted, the word scientist itself was only three decades old when Canada and what would become the RASC were founded. Professional astronomy in Canada was then of a very practical kind. It was the astronomy of place done by surveyors parceling out the North American landscape with reference to the heavenly bodies. It was, quite frankly, astronomy in the service of the colonial enterprise. Some of the surveyors were very good practical astronomers, but they weren't always welcomed when they turned up. But that could happen to practical astronomers anywhere. For instance, the ones who showed up in the remoter parts of Western Europe.
0: The founding of the RASC occurred in Toronto on the evening of Tuesday, December 1st, 1868. The place was the Mechanics Institute at Adelaide and Church. The purpose, in words taken from the minutes of the meeting, this was to take into consideration the propriety of forming a society for the prosecution of astronomical science. And here we run
1: up against the limits of our sources. We don't know the time of day the founders met, it was probably in the evening for none of the founders were men of leisure, and the time of the next meeting is specified as 7pm. Nor do we have complete knowledge of the technologies used to distribute the notice of the meeting to those who might be interested, nor do we know if the notice of the meeting was tailored to attract a wide or a narrow sector of Toronto's population. We've yet to locate a copy of the text. We do know that a circular was sent out to some recipients, because at least one disgruntled writer refers to it. When the Waters were tested for the founding of what was to become the British Astronomical Association in 1890, the movers of that enterprise used printed circulars and letters placed in the periodical press to advertise their organizational meeting. The founders of the RASC may have turned to such means as well. It would be worth searching Toronto papers of the time for any such notices.
0: Whatever mode was used to get the word out, eight people from that population of 50,000 turned up to that meeting. Who were they?
1: Mungle Turnbull, a cabinet maker from Scotland.
0: Andrew Alvins, a tailor from Cornwall.
1: Daniel K. Winder, a former college instructor at a minor American school, and at that time a printer and nonconformist lay
0: preacher from the United States. James L. Hughes, an instructor of the Toronto Normal and Model Schools from Ontario.
1: Samuel Clare, the writing master at the Toronto Normal School from, well, we just don't know.
0: Robert Ridgway, a teacher at Jarvis Collegiate who may or may not have been from Ontario.
1: Charles Potter, optician from London, England.
0: And George Brunt, accountant and partner in the Mammoth House, the tailoring firm which employed Andrew Elvins, who hails from somewhere or other. That's a total of eight people out of a population of about 50,000. At first glance, that turnout looks like the last word in apathy, indicating almost no interest in astronomy as an organized endeavor in Confederation-era Toronto. But that would be the wrong conclusion, because proportionally, that turnout is an order and a half of magnitude greater than even the best-attended meetings of our largest RAS centers in major cities today. It was also two orders of a magnitude greater than the number of people who attended the organizing meeting in London in 1820 for what would in time become the Royal Astronomical Society. Those eight rasc founders represent a strong turnout.
1: What can we say about the social position of the group? Four of these eight white men, and yes, they are all white men, were members of the working class, Elvins, Potter, Turnbull, and the downwardly mobile Winder. Four were members of the middle class, Brunt, Clare, Hughes, and Ridgway. With special pleading, the working class men could all be considered master craftsmen, but only two were unequivocally so, Elvins and Potter. The former enjoying a steady, if modest and hard, career, and the latter eventually prospering as owner of one of the leading scientific instrument firms in the country. Of the middle class men, Clare and Hughes were teaching at the least distinguished tier of post-secondary education, the normal school. Ridgway was a teacher in the secondary system, and Brunt was a partner in the Mammoth House, a tailing enterprise for which he served as accountant. Elvins worked for Brunt's firm, and none of them owned significant astronomical apparatus. What they had going for them was an active interest in astronomy. None of these men were members of the Toronto establishment in 1868. Hughes and Potter eventually rose to some distinction in their professional positions. None were professional scientists. None were astronomical researchers of distinction. The contrast with the founding groups of other astronomical societies of the period is striking. The 14 members who joined John Herschel in 1820 to found the Astronomical Society, later the Royal Astronomical Society, included leading scientific researchers, university professors, members of the upper middle class, and lower gentry. That group included no one from the working
0: class. And they met in a pub, the Freemasons Tavern, whereas we sadly held our organizing meeting in a dry mechanics institute.
1: Our founders, as a group, also contrast with the founders of the British Astronomical Society in 1890— among whom were several professional astronomers, including some from the Royal Greenwich Observatory, leading amateur observers, important astronomy authors, world-class instrument makers, and members of the upper middle class. Again, the contrast with the founders of the RASC is striking. The best analog to the founding and early history of the RASC may be the founding of the Leeds Astronomical Society in 1859, but we can't pursue that here.
0: One of the more colourful incidents around the founding of the RASC was the attempt by some professionals to politely make sure it didn't even happen. Their letters are worth hearing. The first is from the Reverend William Hinks, a professor of natural history at University College in Toronto and president of the Canadian Institute, which too became royal in time. Hinks wrote... Considering what I know of the many difficulties attending the organization of societies, the cost of rooms, printing, and various services, and the interference of one society with another, I'm compelled to conclude that, except where the votaries of science are very numerous and abundant in means, it is incomparably the best plan to have a society like the Canadian Institute embracing all scientific and learned pursuits and pursuing its objects in common. Members specially interested in one branch may organize special meetings so as to unite any real advantages of a separate society with the solid benefits of union.
1: The letter from George Templeman Kingston, professor of meteorology at the University of Toronto and director of the Toronto Magnetic and Meteorological Observatory, also poured cold water on the idea of founding an astronomical society. Quote from the letter, To Claire Esquire, secretary... Of the proposed astronomical society. Sir, I have to acknowledge your circular inviting me to a meeting to be held at the Mechanics Institute for the organizing of an astronomical society. After thinking over the matter, I have come to the conclusion that instead of forming a separate society, it would be better that those gentlemen whose tastes lead them to astronomical pursuits should become members of the Canadian Institute at whose meetings and in the pages of whose journals the communication of any new astronomical fact would be sure to meet with a cordial welcome. If their astronomical discoveries should prove to be sufficiently numerous and important, it might become expedient hereafter to form an astronomical section of the Canadian Institute, as there already is a medical section. Or, indeed, it might be necessary to establish a separate society. But my fear is that if a society with such a title were to be started now, it would lead to disappointment. Believe me, yours truly, G.T. Kingston, quote. Now, as a couple of downers, it would not be surprising if Hinks and Kingston sent their separate letters as part of a concerted effort, as both were prominent members of the Canadian Institute. In another one of those coincidences of history, when John Herschel and his good friend Charles Babbage and friends moved to organize what became the Royal Astronomical Society, again in 1820, they received discouragement from another part of the scientific establishment, namely the very aged Sir Joseph Banks, in his capacity as president of the Royal Society. That's the one founded in the 17th century. One can't doubt that there were elements of sincerity in these discouragements, in part motivated by concerns about the potential for increased competition over resources and patronage, and the possible fracturing of the scientific community, as well as a possible lessening of prestige of the older established learned bodies. Doubtless fears of the lessening of the scientific authority and power of the established body, and its president, in the face of potential upstart astronomical organizations, was also a considerable factor in the opposition. We have to ask, were the letters of discouragement effective? No! No! And a good thing too, otherwise we would not be doing this podcast or celebrating our sesquicentennial.
0: Messiers, Alvins, Clare, Ridgway, Hughes, Winder, Turnbull, Potter and Brunt held their meeting and duly instituted the Toronto Astronomical Club, which became the Toronto Astronomical Society within the year. In the surviving minutes of that first meeting, they set their present and future agenda. Quote, Number one, to meet monthly at such time and place as may be agreed upon. Number two, to spend the evening somewhat as follows. A, reading extracts from papers or publications of anything new or otherwise interesting bearing on the subject of astronomy. B, reading original papers connected with any department of astronomy. C, examining anything new in astronomical science. D, observing celestial objects if circumstances should favor our doing so. And E, conversation, end quote institutional patterns do change over time but it's interesting to note that we still do some of those activities we observe we research and present our own work we discuss developments in the astronomical world formally and informally in different fora and yes we still like to talk one item missing from that list though is education and public outreach that didn't become a preoccupation till much later in the time
1: remaining, we'd like to turn to the most charismatic and evocative artifact which has come down to us as a result of that first meeting leading to the Rask. before we offer some closing reflections. In the Rask archives is a document dating to late 1868 or early 1869, a document with all the photogenic appeal of a cinematic pirate map, complete with interlinear additions, text in different media, picturesque holes, tears and other signs of rough usage, on all the patina and fading of age one could possibly want. It also has an equally picturesque recovery story. About the year 1930, Bert Topham, in response to a newspaper ad for an antique refracting telescope, traveled to a community outside Toronto to take a look. Bert, incidentally, was one of our truly outstanding members in the first half of the last century. The telescope he examined turned out to belong to one of the Rask founders, Robert Ridgway, who had since passed away. Within the telescope case was this very document. It's a copy of our earliest extant bylaws. To see this document and some other artifacts associated with this episode, please visit our website.
0: To the question, what created us? We can answer that we were brought into being by the desire of eight men to pursue astronomy as an avocation in a mutually beneficial association. Such interests were not unusual in the Victorian period, and other approximately similar groups arose in the latter 19th century, but the one which started in Toronto in 1868 seems to have been unique in its Canadian setting. And Andrew Alvins, one of the 1868 founders, stated around the time of the First World War that, quote, the society's meetings have never been discontinued at any time since their inception in 1868, end quote and that the RASC is in direct lineal descent from the Toronto Astronomical Club of 1868. It is of some significance that the RASC is now a Canada-wide organization, and its legacy is ongoing. Thanks to everyone who tuned in, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions, please visit the website at www.rasc.ca slash rask 2018 podcast for contact details. You can also find us on Twitter at Rask History. Our next podcast is scheduled for a month from now and is on a major figure of Canadian astronomy known for his efforts to build the Canadian astronomical community. His story is not what one might suspect, and we come face to face with the difficulty in assessing the effectiveness of now obsolete communications technologies. Thanks again for chiming in, everybody. Our sound engineer is Chelsea Body and our theme music is by Eric Sfilpis.